Now, please turn back with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. I think it's fair to say that the stuff of life uh, can snuff out uh, spiritual realities for us. If you think back to maybe your own week, this last week that you've lived and how easy it is for just the ordinary everyday uh, nothing wrong or sinful about these things, but the ordinary everyday things of life just to uh, almost swamp us, uh, to take up so much time and energy that there's nothing left uh, in us uh, to think about spiritual reality so that we're living for the moment. We're simply living for the day, to survive the day maybe, to survive till the end of the week or whatever it might be. Just the stuff of life can snuff out spiritual realities. And my job uh, as uh, an under-shepherd and as a teacher of God's Word to the congregation, part of my job with the help and the aid and the uh, empowering of the Holy Spirit has to be to be for you and to be for me a kind of spiritual defibrillator. I've got to be someone that goes boom! That we come, uh, not just here, obviously, but uh, in our lives that we are given this uh, spiritual um, uh, uh, defibrillation. <laughs> not sure what the word is. Uh, that br- Sorry? Excellent. You get a spiritual cardio synchronization, which enables you to know and understand and remind yourself, and I remind myself, of uh, spiritual realities. And that's very much what Paul's doing here. He is restating and reminding the people and reminding himself of uh, basic, important spiritual truths that uh, need to be uh, constantly brought before our minds. And what is said here is the message of the Bible. It's the consistent, clear, ongoing message of the Bible from beginning to end. And we need to remember that, that the Bible gives that clarity. And it doesn't tell us two major kind of uh, doctrinal uh, pathways to go down. It doesn't give us different choices uh, of doctrine that we want to take. There is a central, core, basic message that everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to, everything in the New Testament points back to, and it comes around uh, uh, Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. Trouble with the sun shining is that you can all see me spitting. (laughs) Sorry. It'll not reach you. That's why the seats are that far back. Um... It's absolutely clear. And this is God's self-revelation, okay? What God reveals about himself and what he reveals about our need and about his solution to that need is uh, what he tells us, what he wants us to know. And we, we must be very careful about changing that. And you say, well, I would never change that. I don't change God's word, God's wish. But we do it. Maybe not explicitly, but very often implicitly, we want to change what God says about himself and about us because we find it too offensive and too difficult for us. Be careful about that in our lives and in our understanding. Now, if I overheard a conversation somewhere um, 
between two people and someone was saying, yeah, I know Derek really well. I know Derek Lamont, the minister. I know him very well. He's, he's a tremendous musician. And uh, he is an outstanding academic. He can stand tall with all these PhD students uh, that are in the church and everyone else. Is, so he's really clever and he's bright. But when he, go, you know, he goes home and uh, he's, he's violent to his wife and uh, he's brutal. And even sometimes he'll steal from the collection so that he can uh, uh, spend it on uh, whatever he wants to spend it on. Now, if I heard someone saying that, I would say, wait, stop. Hold on a minute. That's not me. That's not what I'm like. I have many faults and failings, uh, and I hope the, the occasional gift. But I know that these are not my gifts, and these are not my failings. And I say, well, you can't speak about me like that. This person might say, oh, yeah, I know. I get on really fantastically well with David. We're, David. We're great friends. I say, I hardly know this person. Why are they saying that about me? You know, you'd be incensed if someone uh, misnamed you or miscalled your character or said things about you that might have been very nice but weren't true. And you can imagine God also, can't you? He give, he, his word, if we believe his word at all, if we understand what his word is, it's his revelation. We, we simply haven't the freedom to pick and choose what we want from it and to cut out the bits that we find offensive and difficult. We, this is God who reveals himself, not only revealing our, himself and our relationship to him, or by nature our lack of relationship with him, but he also reveals his remedy to our situation. And we, we mustn't change who God is. It's the consistent message of who he is throughout the word. And it speaks to us in our personalities, in our characters, in our spiritual realities today, as Cody mentioned in his prayer. So this, this passage gives us a, a desperate diagnosis, okay? It's a very un, unpalatable diagnosis about our spiritual condition before God. Verses 1 to 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins which used to walk, and so on right through to the end of verse 3. This is God speaking, God who is, well, we know him as the expert, don't we? Uh, on everything. He knows everything about everything. There's, there's not an area of... Uh, ignorance in God, but if we can talk about God in such terms, he, he clearly knows spiritual realities. He knows what we are like in our hearts because he is all-seeing and all-knowing. And he makes us diagnosis of our condition before him by nature, naturally, in our fundamental relationship with him. He says we are, he gives us a desperate diagnosis. Now, to keep the medical uh, illustration just for a moment, uh, we need to be listen to what the great doctor says, to the great spiritual medic. If, you, you've got, if you've got stomach pains and you go to a world-renowned cancer specialist, consultant, and he knows by the... the uh, the different symptoms that you have and by the uh, x-rays that he takes and all these kind of things, he knows, he, he diagnoses spirit, uh, stomach cancer. You'd be very foolish as I would be to walk away saying, nah, it's just indigestion. That's all it is. I'm not going to listen to that. And we wouldn't do that. And we don't do that in life, generally speaking. And that's with people who make mistakes. But with God, he, he gives us this... Uh, 
desperate diagnosis about our condition spiritually before him. And it's, it's the consistent message of the Bible that I repeat today. And there's a threefold aspect to it uh, in terms of the diagnosis itself. It, he says in verse 1, we are spiritually dead. You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's speaking here to the believers and looking back to what they were before they were believers, okay? And he says you are spiritually dead in transgressions, which just means, uh, the meaning of the word is just that they, they had st- uh, veered off the path that God wanted them to walk on. That's really uh, in word picture, that's what it means. And uh, they were dead in their trespasses in sins, and sins just means that they'd fallen short of the mark, you know, like a, an arrow that didn't quite reach the bullseye. In fact, it didn't even reach the board. And they missed the mark before God's standards, fallen short of God's standards, drifted away from God, turned their, back, turned their backs on God. And naturally, that is the condition that we were all born in. And even as Christians, that we must remember, we battle against the remaining sin within us. That uh, naturally, we don't love God. We're not attracted to God. We don't uh, uh, care for him as we should. Uh, We don't listen to his ways as uh, he wants us to. We aren't in relationship with him. Uh, We don't love others as we should. Uh, We are at the center, not God. uh, There's an, an unalignment. Is that a word? Another made-up one. It's a good word, though. You know what I mean. Uh, there's, uh, we've moved away. We're uh, out of alignment with uh, God in our lives spiritually. We're rebels against him. And it's like he's saying, look, you're dead to me. It's a hard truth, isn't it? It's a hard truth. We're sitting here, blood pumping through our hearts. We're alive and lots of great things happen. But spiritually, it's, it's like we say to God, you're dead to me, God. But in reality, it's us that are dead to him. By nature, we're spiritually dead. He then goes on, secondly, to say that we are enslaved. And he uses that uh, well-worn, classic, triumvirate of ways in which we're enslaved. He says that following uh, the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, uh, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and so he's using what we know as a, a good uh, uh, description of the enslavement that we, are, that we have in sin to the world, the flesh, and the devil. He uses these three things here, a description. That is that we are bound by nature to, uh, when he speaks of the world here, the course of the world, he means the world without reference to God a kind of secularization of the world, a world that has abandoned God and God's ways, value systems which reject God, so that it's a world in which greed and power and injustice and violence and pornography flourish. And uh, that's the world that we can't escape from. That's the world that we are enslaved to, that we are bound to. We can't release ourselves from it. Have you ever felt hugely paralyzed by the world in which we live. That's the world in which we live. But also he speaks about being enslaved to the devil. Mm. Strong words. Uh, the, the prince of the power of, of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, clearly describing the work of the evil one, the deceptive power under which this world uh, uh, 
uh, reigns, that personal, malevolent source of evil. We believe in God. We believe in a sovereign, powerful, glorious, eternal, living God. He speaks about angelic uh, rebellion and brokenness and the introduction of evil and the source of evil being uh, through the prince of darkness, this malevolent, personal, lying being. And he is the ruler of this broken, rebellious, dark world that lives against God. And we, by nature, humanity, by nature, lie on his side of the divide. That's where we are. And the third emphasis, the world, the flesh, uh, or the world, the devil, and the flesh. He speaks about being enslaved uh, also by the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Self-gratification. It may be old language in some ways, or uh, theological language, technical language, but it's expressing by nature, spiritually, the world in which we live the world that we come from, uh, the world of people that we belong to, where the natural appetite, the good natural appetites God has given us, we take and we abuse them naturally without God. Uh, and we engage in gluttony and in sloth and in lust and in power and in all that goes with it. And these things separate us from God because they are anti-love, they are anti-God, and they are anti-His Lordship and his uh, uh, glorious uh, sovereign uh, power. These enslave us. And they're too powerful by nature for us to overcome. And this is the restatement of the consistent message of God's word, that we're enslaved by this big world in which we live that is uh, a world that lives without reference to God. We're enslaved by our own passions and we're enslaved by the work and the deceptive power of Satan. So that uh, threefold uh, aspect reminds us of our diagnosis that in the first place, uh, we are those who ha have these three things. But we are also people who are uh, not only spiritually dead, not only enslaved, but verse 4 says condemned. So a lot of people today would like to take out verse 6. Seven, uh, sorry, uh, verse 3b, the second half of it, they would like to take out uh, that uh, verse about being children of wrath. It sounds just dreadful, doesn't it? Children of wrath. It's horrible. Uh, and yet God is describing that uh, we, and we become, we are, humanity is, everyone is born condemned uh, individually by God. Uh, wrath, we don't use that word much now, I don't think, really. Uh, I certainly don't use it much, and it has a lot of bad connotations for people. Um, and people will take it and uh, abuse the concept, uh, certainly the biblical concept, um, because God's wrath uh, is not similar to our bad temper. It's not like that at all. It's not that in any way God is spiteful or malicious or has animosity or revengefulness within him. 
when, it's, when the Bible speaks about God's wrath, it speaks about his settled, absolutely consistent, like the message of the Bible, his utterly consistent uh, hostility to evil. In other words, a good thing. Because he hates and uh, he judges and he will expunge, ultimately, evil because evil is destructive and evil is evil. It's entirely predictable in God. He will always respond wrathfully against evil because it's anti-love and it's anti-grace and it's anti-life and it's uh, deceptive. He condemns it and he will condemn it. Just as we, even in our fallen sinful natures, even in our brokenness, when we are faced with repugnant evil in society, we, we well up with a sense of just anger against it. You know, and isn't that right? If we just, well, it doesn't matter, it's okay, no. Rape that little girl, that's fine, that's no problem. It's just life, isn't it? We don't, we, we, we absolutely, we're, Repug- repulsed by that kind of evil. And sometimes, if you're honest, I need to be honest, sometimes I've looked into my own heart, I've just been repulsed by what's there. Repulsed by the thoughts, by the selfishness and the pride and the ignorance and the lust and the impurity. And, and if that's sometimes our response as fallen, broken, sinful human beings, how much more will the perfect, eternal Son of God uh, uh, God of the universe also have the settled uh, hostility to all that's evil. And of course, we need to remember his answer to evil, uh, which is so uh, unbelievable, which you'll look at very shortly. So this uh, three nature, uh, flesh, the world, uh, spiritually dead, sorry, enslaved and uh, condemned is his diagnosis of uh, our condition. And it's it's interesting for us, and I think this is also very important, because let's not get self-righteous when we think or talk about or even share this truth with others, which ultimately, as we share God's diagnosis, we must do. We must share it with others. We must remember it's a universal condition, uh, condition uh, that we see. He says, you were dead. That is, if we look at the context, you, this Gentile church, were dead in trespasses. Then he says, uh, all of us, in verse 3, that's all of us Jews. If they were you, the Gentiles, all of us, the Jews, who Paul includes himself in that. And then he goes on to say uh, that uh, are like the rest of mankind, uh, in verse 3b. So he's broadening it. He focuses on who he's speaking to, and he reminds himself that he was part of that. And then he says it's a condition that the rest of the world uh, is also... Uh, uh, diagnosed under and so it's a universal condition there's no pride there's no separatism there's no say well i'm okay i was born in the church and i was brought up in the church i was i'm not like that by nature just like sometimes if we go to that cancer specialist and he tells us that we have got stomach cancer but maybe we don't even feel any pain because that could be the case with cancer can it well it maybe we don't feel like we're condemned We don't feel like uh, we're guilty. We don't feel like we're enslaved. But God, the living God of the universe, has consistently through his word said, this is your condition by nature. This is your heart. 
This is what I am saying we're like. It's in our nature. We were by nature children of God. That's what we were born to. Um, in Adam, our first representative head, it is through him and his rebellion that we share guilt. Not in some kind of un, in, unjust way that, oh, he did all these wrong things. Why, why am I guilty because of it? But because as a representative head, we would have done exactly the same. We would have acted and responded and rebelled and gone against God in exactly the same way as Adam did. We would have done the same thing by nature, but also by choice in our ongoing lives. It's part of our spiritual genetic code. We can't change it. Naturally, we are condemned. Naturally, we're separated. Naturally, we're enslaved. Naturally, we are dead. That's the relentlessly clear and consistent message of the Bible. Now, very briefly, that's not the whole story, of course. Uh, it's not, we're not, we believe uh, in uh, total depravity. That is that we are spiritually dead. We don't believe in absolute depravity. Which we're not as bad as we can be, humanly speaking, with one another. So there's a lot of God pours out a lot of common grace. There's a lot of beautiful things happen in this world. There's a lot of beautiful people as we look at each other uh, and as we see the good things people do. And it's a reflection even of the brokenness, uh, uh, even in the brokenness of society, there, it's still a reflection of God there. And it's, it's beautiful. And it points us to God. But before God, we are spiritually dead. And we need that to understand and accept that diagnosis because I want quickly now uh, to move on to the celebrated cure. We should never really be talking only about the, the desperate diagnosis. We should always be moving as believers in testimony and in life and in our understanding of life to the celebrated cure that we have. I've entitled this sermon, A Critical Contrast. And that's exactly what Paul is, is doing here. He's, he's um, highlighting a critical contrast between our desperate diagnosis uh, that God gives us and the uh, celebrated cure that God gives us. And there's this link phrase, but God. And so 1 to 3 tells us of our terrible condition and then we've got, but God. And then we've got, Three, uh, four through to ten gives us this amazing contrast and this amazing answer that gives us great confidence and joy and hope and even as we battle and as uh, Corey prayed about the struggles and the battles that we face in life which undoubtedly we do we look at them and we understand our own natures even our redeemed natures uh, we understand them in the light of his cure and it makes a difference never leave out the cure, when we speak about the diagnosis, this is our reality. As God says it, you might not feel this today as a Christian. You might not feel the things that God says about you, but what we believe in God's living word is this is what is true of you and me as Christians today. If we are Christians, and if you're not a Christian, please consider his diagnosis and his cure, vital contrast. We are uh, united to Christ. That's what we are. We're united to Christ. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Repeated, repeated, repeated. We are united to Christ. So if in these early verses I was saying that we are united by nature, we are in Adam. And there's uh, in your uh, questions in the, in the Bible study for Wednesday night, you'll have different references in the New Testament to what Paul says about being in Adam. Uh, but now, he said, now you are in Christ. If you're condemned in Adam, now this is what you are in Christ. If you've taken Christ to be your Lord and your Savior, this is now what you have. You might not feel it today. I'm not saying that we feel this way all the time, but this is his, this is God's word for us. Uh, and the parallels are that we are privileged all, I hope I'm right in saying this, we're as privileged as Christ is himself in that we share in his victory and we share in what he has done. The experience of Christ following death uh, is paralleled in what he has gifted us. So uh, we, are, we were dead, we are made alive, uh, we are raised up, and we are seated in the heavenly places. Now that's just paralleling the post-crucifixion experience of Jesus. So on the third day he was made alive, uh, he was raised up, he was ascended to the Father in the, after 40 days, and then he is seated uh, it's called the session. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in victory. That means he's victorious over death and over sin and over the grave, all that he came to do. And that is what Paul says we share in, in our unity to Christ. So today, as a Christian, you're alive spiritually. Not dead. You're alive spiritually, which means you can love God. You can put him first. You can serve him. You can rejoice in him. You're alive because you, by faith, have accepted what Jesus has done. The death that we, did, we are under, the condemnation, has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. He has taken the price. He has had the wrath of the Father poured out on himself. He has taken the cost of evil. You know, I spoke earlier about remembering the answer. You know, when the, the, when the diagnosis is so bad and are, we're condemned, can we, can we remember that on the cross, Christ took our condemnation? God took on himself. That's the answer. That's why today we rejoice. That's why we sing about Jesus Christ. That's why we, we call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves Christians because we follow this Christ in whom we are made alive. And uh, we are raised with Christ. That is, we're united with him. We are in union with this living Christ. It doesn't matter what will happen to us in our lives, whether we die tomorrow or we die when we're 110, or if we have a great life or a terrible life, we uh, are united to Christ and we are seated. What does it mean? We are seated with him in the heavenly realms. I think it's simply, it's not kind of vague, uh, mystic truth. I think it's simply illustratively telling us that we are vic like Christ, we share in his victory. We can be victorious over sin. We spend a lot of our time saying, ah, gee, you know, I just can't not sin. I can't, I can't overcome temptation. 
That's not true. What we mean is, I don't really want to give, in to tempta- I give up. Uh, I don't really want to resist temptation. I actually want to do this. Because God has given us the victory and we have no right to say that we are uh, enslaved anymore. We were enslaved, but you can't now say, oh, well, I can't help getting drunk. You know, it's just a weakness that I have because God has uh, broken the chains of enslavement to sin and doing what everyone else might be doing without reference to God. And we have victory in him. We're covered in his grace and we have his strength. That's, that's the consistent, ongoing message that God keeps on giving to us, that we can love and serve and follow him. And that Jesus Christ, he is our channel. He's who we come to. He's our, our savior. Uh, the cross is central to us because there we see where the, the bonds of enslavement and death were broken for us. He did it on our behalf. We're united to Christ. And he did that. Why? Because of his grace. That's why he did it. And this passage is full of, of you know, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Made us like, by grace you have been saved. So that in the coming of the unsearchable riches of grace and kindness towards Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. This is not, it's the gift of God. It's just, it's, it's that whole um, uh, overflowing waterfall effect of language that he's using. Great, great love. It's extravagant love. Not a tiny wee bit. Well, it's okay. I don't mind him. I'll maybe, maybe die for one or two of his sins. It's extravagant, fool. He takes the cost because he is hugely in love. You know that that's your response when you love someone, isn't it? You're extravagant towards them. When you love some, when you, when you can't stand someone, it's really difficult to be, to be extravagantly loving. Grace can help us to do it, but sometimes it's difficult. But when we love someone, we just, we love giving them things. It's, it's something we, we pour out. And uh, that's what God is, and that's what God has done for us. It, it doesn't seem like that sometimes. That's why we need the defibrillator, the spiritual defibrillator, to, to waken us up and remind us this is what we have. This is what we have in Christ, that he's not an ogre. He's not looking over us to watch where we fail him, and then he's going to f- slam us. It's not like that. He's a loving, caring rich in mercy, glorious, uh, kind God. Rich, you know, it's such an attractive characteristic here, and it's in such contrast to what we understand by, uh, sometimes by his wrath. But his wrath is every, it's, it's absolutely the only opposite there can be to perfect love is perfect wrath. Can't be one without the other. They're both needed. You know, if someone, if someone punches my child, you know, I'm going to protect my child. And I'm going to be angry against the evil that was perpetrated against my child. That's good wrath, isn't it? That's right wrath. And that, that's what God has in perfection. By grace, we are saying, we love. This is a God who loves giving presents. He's given the greatest gift of all. He's given us salvation. You haven't earned it. I haven't earned it. It isn't genetic for us. We haven't been born with it. We have accepted his gift. That's what we have today. Now, that is humbling. Someone gives you a Mercedes-Benz. That's humbling. Free and full. They give you that. You don't, 
haven't deserved it. You've just gift, shown great gift. But how much more in Jesus Christ? This is our God. Are you sitting here today and you're not a Christian? That's great that you're here. It's fantastic that you're under the word. But if you're not a Christian, what can you possibly be doing to save you or to keep you from this gift? Are you genuinely going to stand before him on that day and say, I didn't need it. I think I was okay on my own. I did my best. Will you not accept that? And you'll have the image of his son nailed to a cross. You say, well, no. Your, your best isn't good enough. I needed to go as God, the son, to the cross. And the conclusion is, of course, that we're God's masterpiece, unbelievably. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Could be translated masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation, therefore, is recreation. You're not a same old Joe Bloggs. You're recreated. You're new Joe Bloggs. <laughs> you're the same individual, but you've been utterly recreated by grace in Christ for good works, for his glory. Um, this is a great thing. You know, what's my purpose in life? What am I here to do? Am I here to defend myself? Am I here to justify my own existence? Am, am I here to be ambitious? Am I here to be successful? No. We are created to do good works. That is, to do things that God wants us to do. To love him and to love one another. That's the epitome of ambition. The series is called A New Ambition. That's the epitome. You want to be a rocket scientist? That's great. But there's a higher ambition. That is to, to do good works that you've been created in Christ Jesus to do, to outwork the fruit of the Spirit. You've got a new design for your life. In whatever field, whatever uh, area of life you are, you have a new design, uh, whether it's in the home or whether it's a career uh, in a different way or uh, studying or uh, sport, whatever it might be, the design is for you to do good works. That's the, that's the height of your calling. It's the evidence of grace. Uh, good works are not to earn your salvation. They are to prove it. You're not saved by your good works. You're saved for your good works. See the difference? We are saved to put Christ first, to serve him and to follow him. We are servants. That's our highest calling. We are servants of the living God to do uh, created in Christ Jesus, recreated, gloriously created, which God has prepared us to do. That's his plan. We spend a lot of time saying, well, I wonder what God's plan is for me. I wonder if I take this path or if I take this path. This is his plan. It doesn't matter what path you take. This is his plan. We can take all kinds of different paths in life that are equally right to take. You know, it's not like you're going to fall out of God's will by taking one path against another, unless it's overtly sinful but his plan whatever path you take in life is to do good works that's your plan this week okay this week in which you've entered there's no application today none just this truth go and live it go and live it this week it's a great reason to be alive and if you're not a christian what's your purpose this week what has god prepared you in advance to do 
prepared you in advance to believe and to accept his gift. Accept his gift and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, help us, we ask and pray. This is great truth, far too great truth to rush through in half an hour. May we take time in our lives, our hearts, to understand your diagnosis, a desperate diagnosis. Uh, we can never understand just how dark our hearts are. But show us our hearts, uh, not to lead us to despair, but to lead us to your astounding gift, your uh, cure, your help and your hope. And this great future that today, today here in St. Columbus, everyone who is a Christian needn't fear death uh, whatsoever. Uh, it is, yes, an enemy, but it's a defeated and crushed enemy. And it is uh, for us uh, being clearly defeated by Jesus. And uh, we needn't fear life either. Uh, help us to be strong and courageous and understand what you consistently tell us about yourself and about your gifts to us and about your love. And may we understand that your wrath is a good thing because it means that evil will not flourish and will not be victorious in this world that we see ultimately in the cross. Uh, and the, re the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. When hell and the grave and the wrath of God was all poured out. And uh, where Christ and life uh, was victorious on our behalf. Lord, may we rejoice today and give thanks for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.